0: I'm Mike Gillis, and I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio versus the Martians. This month's single serving selection Phantasm.
1: Say, Casey, this episode isn't going to leak all over my ice cream, is it? You know what? <laughs>
0: Warning shots are bullshit.
1: <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, this month, from the year 1979, we are talking about Phantasm, uh, written and directed by Don Coscarelli, who also wrote and directed The Beastmaster, Survival Quest, Bubba Hotep, as well as Phantasm 2, II, Phantasm 3, Lord of the Dead, and Phantasm 4, Oblivion. So i had never seen this before me neither (laughs) and uh so we're coming in fresh this was actually recommended by our guest who's joining us after a long absence we've dearly missed you we're of course friend of the show returning guest mr todd maxfield matsumoto i'm totally excited to be here and talk about phantasm one of my favorite
2: flicks of all time
1: so todd i guess let's just get right into it um if you had to explain phantasm to somebody, uh in like a paragraph or two, what is this movie all about? Wow. Um I I
2: think it's a it's a 7 late 70s gonzo horror um sci-fi Gosh, I don't even know how to how to really describe that movie <laughs> in such movie a is, short. This movie is weird. <laughs> yeah. It is a weird movie, and it's a it's a weird movie. It
0: starts off as a weird movie, and then it just gets weirder. Yeah. So, uh, what is it? The overarching sweep of the plot is uh, a kids t- two brothers whose parents have have died a couple years before are attending a funeral at the local. Uh, I guess this is in Oregon. This is in rural Oregon somewhere.
1: It's hard to tell. It's definitely yeah. it. has the look of an 80s small town. That would be populated by kids on bikes going on an adventure. Right. It has that look to it,
0: but uh, it's, it all takes place at night. <laughs> there's there's a there's a a doings afoot at the uh, funeral home, and it appears that the funeral people are doing something with the bodies, and that opens up a larger mystery between the, this young teenager and his older brother,
1: and a mysterious funeral director who looks like a monster man. Who <laughs> yeah. it looks like he was grown in a lab to be terrifying to children. The excellent Angus Scrim. Yeah. Angus right.
0: Scrim. That's such a even his voice is great. Oh god. You, you think they would du- you, they would dub this guy to get a like a voice actor, but not only does he kind of just look like a universal monster weirdo, he also has that voice that is accompanies the, like the strangeness and the menace.
1: Yeah, this... Of this, the tall man. The tall man is so great with Angus Scrim because he both looks and sounds, like you said. He's the both halves. Where normally you'd have to split this up like you did with Vigo the Carpathian and Ghostbusters 2 where you get this crazy psychopath-looking guy and then you just get, like, Max von Sydow to do his voice. <laughs> but here we got the full package. So this is evil funeral director who's up to weird shit with the bodies. God, he's got... Cra- he can go into your dreams. He can have superhuman strength. Uh, He bleeds like melted creamsicle (laughs) and he commands this, like chrome death ball that flies around and tries to drill into you.
0: Well, and he can also m- transform himself into a comely lass. Yeah. A seductive, beautiful woman.
1: That's the thing that really hit me is that this movie kind of has the combined DNA of a seventies movie and an eighties movie. Cause 1979 is like the perfect hinge between those two decades. It's like running 1980s software on 1970s technology. <laughs> that's a, I think really astute. It, 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 feels like the 80s it has the sort of fun trashy gore and nudity of the 80s but we've got like shag carpeting stairs and the main character mike who's the kid who's investigating all of this before his big brother gets pulled into it has very 1970s haircut he's got an awesome jean jacket um, and he's got an amazing pillowcase with like leopard print on it (laughs) so there's all this crazy sort of 1970s look but it definitely feels, from a a standpoint, that we're going into the 1980s. But it doesn't feel like a standard 80s slasher flick. It feels almost like... I don't know. It's like...
0: It, a, it, what it feels like to me when I watched it the second time was an Italian giallo horror movie yeah. made by an American. Basically trying to do an, uh, an imitation.
1: And in It's like a reverse Spaghetti Western horror things, movie? The
0: things that are weird about it are like... For example, there is a not very veiled, like reference to things from Frank Herbert's Dune. Right. Yes, and it, there is. a and ton you're like, of Dune. That n- none of that would be there. There would only be like an American who was just a geek for science fiction stuff, um, who wanted to include that in his in his movie. Th- those those things wouldn't end up existing. The things that felt most like a horror uh, Italian horror movie is one just having a vaguely zombie like premise because there's what you're. It's like dead bodies. It's like People, hands reaching out of the ground, having all this zombie premise. The second uh, is the terrible lighting. I mean, I think the great part about this is this is absolutely a low, low low-budget movie. And the lighting for everything that's exterior is really dark. I mean, a lot of 70s movies, that, but this is a low-budget 70s movie. But it also has the thing of the editing is so strange because i think they had to cut it down a lot i think what yeah, happens like, like 3 hours initially it's this is oh, this wow. is a nice this is a nice like uh, 89 minutes it's a perfect horror movie it's length it's really brisk but it's so it's it is so cu- cut so strangely that there are like A lot of ADR lines that explain things in between that are off camera to explain things that are happening because you can tell they're just like, we're going to we're chopping this shit up and we just need to have someone say, that looks like Reggie's truck, you know? Yeah. So because they either didn't get the coverage or they had to cut that shit out or if it was just
1: like they had to piece this thing together. But it also doesn't. It's like a low budget movie, but it isn't like a bare bones, like American movie style cheap movie. No, no looks like a movie that you could put in a theater on a screen in a real theater without knowing like the, the manager of the theater. Um, well, it the looks like a in... real movie, but it also looks like a movie that was made in a location where most of the actors who are still professional actors are friends of the director. And I know that the actor who plays Reggie, the actor who plays Mike, these are all people, Angus Scrim too. They all appeared in other movies that Don really did. So he's got a stable of people. And I think this is like his, third movie that he wrote and directed so he's he's in this and there are shots that look genuinely really cool like when you do see that that ice cream truck crashed there's a lot of fog there's like beams of light going through the fog it's framed in a really wonderfully disturbing way like there's moments where like the bit where mike is like strangled slash thrown through the back of a Volkswagen while it drives away and he lands dead. It's a genuinely jarring shot of, Oh shit, they killed a, ch- they killed a child. <laughs> um, there's a lot of stuff like that where it genuinely, the sets look pretty amazing. They look way better than a set would. So like I said, there's a bit of the kind of early Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson kind of, We're just a bunch of friends making a horror movie. And you mix that with this kind of weird Giallo, David Lynchian strangeness. This is way weirder and more dreamlike than a lot of American horror movies would get. Because there's just shit in this movie that they never explain. They throw something in there. It's treated as if it's established. And then you move on because there's this kind of dream logic. And it's like, I've had nightmares where I just know this person is my friend. I've never seen them before. They seem to have been hired from Central Casting to be my best friend in something. And then they die, and I don't think about them for the rest of the dream because I have a different plot. It just kind of transitions from one thing into another like two Monty Python sketches. And this movie (laughs) does that a lot where Mike, the main character, you know, he's now an orphan. He's living with his older brother. It's kind of implied his older brother was in a rock band and traveling around, but is now kind of like anchored to his old hometown to take care of his younger brother, Mike, who's like, I think Mike is like 13 in this movie. Right. And he's probably feeling a bit tied down. And, at the same time, Mike is also friends with a fortune teller in town. <laughs> who it's sort of kind of established that they have an existing relationship. That he's getting sort of spiritual advice on what to do and his own fears of his brother ditching him with a relative and leaving town. And at the same time, one of uh, Jody, his older brother's friends, dies. I guess the third part, like of a band that they've got, and then that just leads into an you know an investigation of this crazy funeral home, and it's just kind of goes from there and it never stops to like explain anything weird shit just happens and you're supposed to just run with it
0: i mean what's what is the todd this is your favorite this is like one of your favorite movies what is the about the aesthetic of this that is that elevates it i know mike has been talking about it but for you yeah what do you see in it yeah so you you touched on a few really interesting
2: things um you you mentioned like the the influence of, you know, Italian horror and the soundtrack, right? Not oh, yeah. just not just the theme, which is iconic mm-hmm. and used in a you know, sampled all the time and covered by black metal bands and things. But the just even sort of like John Carpenter, where throughout just even background music and weird sounds that are that even now, you know, we're, we're sonically we're so used to so many things. They still really work well and sound unique and weird. Um, so much of that. Harkens back to, you know, bands like Goblin. Yeah. That would, that that I was, was just going to say it sounds
0: like Goblin. Yeah. yeah.
2: So it has that that kind of feel. I prefer it to Goblin. I, I think it it has a, a warmer, more visceral feel to it. It doesn't feel like guys in a studio. It just feels like this is this is how this movie sounds. This is what ha- is happening there. That you talked about like the dream logic and it does definitely follow dream logic. Coscarelli talked about how this was inspired by a dream he had. Right. And I think, you know, some of that, some of that gimmicky dream logic that we experience a lot in famously in nightmare on Elm street. None of those, the whole nightmare on Elm street thing wouldn't even exist. I don't think without phantasm and the tall man who is not a slasher as you, as you mentioned, but it, it really lends that inescapable permeating evil that doesn't really follow logic, but just pops up when it needs to.
0: Right. Yeah. One of the things that is strange, you talk about the idea of the dream logic. One of the things that I think, the idea of framing of of Don uh, Don Coscarelli framing the idea of dream logic, I think, helps sort of patch over the fact that, like I said, it, it, the editing can be a little disjointed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the fact that because they were like filming this on weekends, yeah. you know, or whatever, uh, and do and didn't have a big budget, you basically just don't see other people at all. You see, like the two brothers, the see Reggie, he goes to a bar once and there's a couple people there. So, normally in a small movie, the you can't, dune cantina the, by the way. The dune cantina. Dune cantina, cantina. Yes. You can't afford to have a huge crowd or a bunch of extras or your friends or whatever. Um but in but like in a dream, usually your dreams aren't crowded full of people. Usually your dreams just have a few people around you that are there for whatever reason. And I, it's just one way that it plays into like this stark weirdness of this movie. Like I said, normally it would be distracting for a movie that is a low budget and especially where it's a lot of it's not lit well. You can tell like, you know, when they open the door to go into the funeral home and there's no light in there. And, you know, normally that would be just like, well, because they couldn't. They couldn't pay for the extra lights. Like they had to get the shot done. But in this, you do, it doesn't it doesn't mind as much as the fact that sometimes it's all just the entire frame is in shadow and all you see is Mike's face. Yeah. Um. That it that ends up working really well yeah. when you think of it in that that respect. And
1: I think the things that in almost any other movie, if you didn't have the precedent of the dream logic, would be negatives actually become kind of unnerving positives. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, the funeral home. From the exterior does not look like it matches the interior of this place. No. At all. I have no idea what the geography of this building is. Like, you go in there, and it's this mausoleum that looks like it was designed for David Lynch to be buried there. <laughs> where there's these white marble floors, and there's these... It's like a white... snakeskin marble. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. It's weird. It's very got these weird. veins of black that almost looks at a distance like an animal pattern it's it's (laughs) these red curtains and these like pedestals with busts on them that it's just very strange and echoey footsteps and just these like little brass labels all over with all the people that are buried there and you're like is this the entirety of the building? Is this two or three rooms? This could be 50 rooms. You just immediately kind of feel like I'm lost already and I'm only in one place. Yeah, and- the,
2: the chapel. The chapel is really high ceiling. And when you look at the, the mansion from the outside, it's
0: like, where could that chapel be inside of there, right? Is this something that we talked about in Malignant, about how there's like a... Total mismatch between the exteriors that they found and the interiors they built on a set. And this is clearly like a cost saving thing because like in a wide shot, they have just like thrown a couple headstones next to the house. But they clearly weren't going to film inside that house. They were only going to film outside of it. But I love the idea of it just being like they'll just do like a cutaway and it's just a like a grassy knoll and they've just put some uh they've just put some headstones, some fake headstones there. And that's it. That's all it needs. I'm glad you mentioned the house, too, because
2: that's actually an iconic film house. That's, I believe it's Dunsmere House or Dunsmere Home. I want to say house. It's in Oakland. I don't know if you've seen the horror film Burnt Offerings, Mm -hmm. Um, also a 70s, Oliver Reed, Karen Black, really haunting, creepy flick. It's all about that house. And that is the house. Uh, I think it's also the mansion that it's the hotel that they stay in. And I want to say, so I married an ax murderer. And, oh. oh, awesome. <laughs> I could be mistaken by way. I think I'm right. And um, what view to a kill it was in. Whoa. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, it, but I always, you know, I see it and I think Morningside mortuary. That's what that is. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: It's kind of a horror movie of Vasquez rocks. So you can, you just, you spot it right away. Yeah. And, and
2: one other thing I wanted to touch on is that of Coscarelli's flicks, this one to me seems the most authentic and while it is, you know, it was done on, like you said on the weekends and they were they were running power supposedly out of neighbors houses and things like that, you know. It's <laughs> right. crazy things like that. It to me has the the most like I said authentic genuine feel to it and it um it feels far less like a B movie than anything else that he's been involved in. It feels to me I think it stands I, I dare say it stands on the same level of films from that era, like The Exorcist and, uh, you know, Rosemary's Baby and things like that, that are, are done with a much larger budget by auteurs. And somehow he hasn't been able to, even with the other fan, especially with the other Phantasm movies, hasn't been able to replicate that magic that he was able to hmm. achieve with that.
1: Yeah. The thing I, I really get this is that it manages to create very iconic images that, I think I've seen on video box art as a kid. <laughs> and these are images that have stuck with me. Things like Angus Scrim and his he's like a I don't know, he's like six four, but he looks way taller. I, I would not be surprised if he was the inspiration for like Slender Man.
2: He was the inspiration for Slender oh, Man. Wow, wow. And in fact, they did make him taller by doing things like if you notice he has like, I don't know, four inch heels on his boots. First of all, second, they put him in suits that were too small, which made him look wow. lankier. Um, scenes like with Jody, the older brother, when he tells him the funeral's about to begin. Oh. Uh, and he's like towering over him. They, yeah. They're they about the same height. So they have him on an apple crate. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right.
1: He just, he's got this face that, I mean, the way his sort of, ha- his hair just like hangs on him. And there's just like big eyes, these sunken cheeks. And... Um, he's immediately recognized. Well, I've seen this guy before. And there's a sort of sense that even if you haven't been into like a, a mom and pop blockbuster type video store in the 1990s, it feels like you've still seen him somewhere. And I remember the crazy chrome ball with these crazy like knives that pop out of it that the look Swiss like can openers. <laughs> yeah. The Swiss Army. Or- and the, it's like, it's so strange and specific. And I'm like, Is This has to be where they're from. I mean, I've seen these little bits and pieces of it, yet this movie doesn't have the the fame of something like Friday the 13th or The Nightmare on Elm Street. I kept
0: confusing this with Life Force. Yeah, And when I watched it, I finally realized why. It was because there's the same plot point of thinking that you're uh, some horny guy making out with a beautiful girl and then flipping and then it's this it's a weird old guy. That's, yeah. that's just like I think that's the only thing okay. that's a parallel between those two but for some reason that image I think is what confused the two in my mind. That's a part of but the l- old
1: guy's plan that is the strangest thing. Right. So <laughs> um, let's just get his plan out on the table yeah. that they are taking dead bodies or making dead bodies and then through some process that we never see transforming them into like little people in monk robes who will be used as slaves on either another planet or another hell dimension. (laughs) It's not really clear, but loading them in these weird plastic tubs as transportation and that this funeral home is also like a portal to that hell dimension. And it is fucking weird. And there's like a tuning fork entrance that you go through that takes you to this other dimension or planet. And, You don't know why they're doing this. You don't know why they have that little floating ball that when it jabs you in the forehead, it sucks out all your blood and shoots it as a fountain out (laughs) of the back. Um, But the part of this plan that just confuses me is, one, disguising yourself as a sexy lady and picking up dudes at a bar one by one does not seem like a really... um, it, it doesn't seem like an efficient way of getting corpses. And it's one thing to lead a dude into the, the, the cemetery to sleep with him and then just stab him when he gets there. But the tall man in disguise as a lady is having sex with these people to completion. So I have to imagine that this entity is also really horny. <laughs>
2: Well, he's got to have some motivation. And you get the feeling that he's been doing this for a very long time. Yeah. Right? We see in the antique store the, the,
0: the shot a, that- We have a Blade Runner picture, right? Have, yeah, okay. that's right. So the uh, the audience hasn't seen it. The uh, The kid goes to an antique store and he's looking through old sepia-tone photographs and he sees what looks like the tall man on a horse-drawn carriage in, you know, a hundred years before or something. But, it, but it's the movie magic where it's like- Then it starts to move and it zooms in and the tall man looks at the camera or whatever. So we assume that's part of the dream logic thing or there are Blade Runner pictures in this universe. I don't know. Well, I think it's,
2: you know, if you think about the miniseries of it with Tim Curry, um, there's that excellent shot when they're looking through the, the history book of Derry and it shows the street and suddenly Pennywise comes cartwheeling in. And he comes right up to them and, and, you know, attacks. That's straight out of that antique shop in Phantasm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the thing I kind of got is that he has things in common with Freddy Krueger, but he's way more Pennywise, that there's a part about the tall man that feels intangible. Like you can't really nail down what his powers are. So you can't prepare for him that he, that at one point, um, Mike, cuts his fingers off with a knife uh, while trying to escape from him. They'll fall wriggling to the ground and he's got all that, you know, orange blood all over it. He screams like a monster, but it doesn't seem to slow him down because he just has both hands. The next time you see him, he blows him up in a car and he's fine. So you don't know what you can do to this guy. And that, that part of, is him, there more than one of him? Yeah. No. Yeah. And the same thing is there's that other caretaker who's killed by the Chrome death ball. And, it's at first when he's getting stabbed in the face, he has like that regular blood. He's got red blood. That sort of like orange reddish, like taxi driver blood that starts like spewing out of his head. But when he falls to the ground dead, the blood that starts to come out starts to look a bit yellowish. I thought that that's was urine. Piss. I thought that's that was urine. Piss. That's urine. Okay. Yeah. And in the early, in the early
2: I'm old enough and been watching this movie long enough that I remember that you you couldn't really tell what that was at all. And Coscarelli has said that that's why they were able to secure an R rating because um, if you could see a good print of it and tell like you can now that it's urine, it wouldn't have have gotten an R. Oh, Oh,
1: yeah. That's always the thing is that I think they were starting to get a little bit like, I don't know, how bloody are we allowed to make these movies? Uh, And that's why, you know, movies like Taxi Driver and, you know, Dawn of the Dead had that kind of bright, red kind of paint blood yeah uh because that's what you had to do if you you could make real blood but there's no way you'd get into a theater but so that other caretaker guy who was wearing sort of a jumpsuit so i kind of got the impression that he did some kind of manual labor he's the the groundskeeper groundskeeper guy. he was human yeah he's a slave Okay, that is, I was trying, there's, I love that there, it's I something I love, and I'm also confused by <laughs> yeah. so much of this movie. I'm like, so does he know what he's doing? Okay, he's been enslaved, but he hasn't been shrunken down, and I'm like. Well, we, we need to also discuss of the fact
0: that you, when you first, the other sort of henchmen, the minions, they're Jawas, <laughs> so they're like, they're wearing brown, long hooded robes, mm-hmm. and you can't see their face. I guess, unlike Jawas, they. They don't say Utini and have cute little high voices. They have like growls, like animalistic. They're really menacing. Yeah. yeah, They're running all around. It's like if hobbits turned into Nazgul. (laughs) 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 But you don't, you don't, the reveal of what they are lasts for a really long time. So all you know is that like, if they get too close, they might be discovered and the henchmen are going to try to attack them or ward them away. Um, but but yeah, they seem
1: to have the strength of a full-sized dude because at yeah. the end, because that other planet they mentioned has really high gravity, it's like the condensed person. Yeah, I,
0: we have to, I have to talk about that too
1: because they the the sort of the explaining, the
0: third act at the beginning of the third act where they sort of explain the big weirdness is the three characters, it's Mike the Kid, his brother Jody, and Reggie. In the weird room. Um, yeah, the 2001 room, in, right? Yes, it absolutely feels like walking in and seeing Dave Bowman or something, but instead it's a tuning fork, forks, um, that uh, Mike sort of, he notices that there's something there and sticks his hand through, and then sticks his head through and almost and fa- starts to fall in, and then you get that one really cool, this is, that's really the otherworldly shot of what looks to be the other planet that they're on. But, then the, when album po- planet, but the album cover planet. <laughs> <yes. laughs> it's. But then, like the characters just like reverse engineer all of this. They're just like, they give you all the exposition of the plot in about a minute. And you're like, how would they know this? It doesn't matter. It's the movie. (laughs) Again, that's,
1: that's part of the dream logic. How does he
0: know they're slaves? How do they know it's a high gravity? It's like Like, this intuitive thing, right? Yeah. There's this throughout the movie, there's
2: this kind of psychic implication that the brothers have a psychic link, that the tall man and Mike have some sort of psychic link. There's something that is unexplained and just barely hinted at and that's totally weird and in an in a normal flick that would be like you can imagine tom servo making fun of that right yeah (laughs)
1: but it 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 somehow works like it that doesn't make any sense and okay yeah revelations that remind me of dreams i've had i had a dream when i was like 16 where somebody was like hey come check this out and they're walking around carrying a toilet and in that (laughs) toilet is this bright green yellowish liquid and as soon as I start to smell I go, no, this is poison. They're trying to kill me. And it's like- You just knew. <laughs> yeah, I knew. There yeah. was no reason for me to know that. The plot just required me to know that. You need to be scared now. They're trying to kill you with this green Mountain Dew poison. <laughs> and the movie does that a lot. He's like, they're slaves. They're being taken there to this planet for that. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm willing to go with it because I should probably get out of this room really fast. And it's- it's just fucking strange. And I like how Reggie just kind of goes with it. He's missed most of the plot at this point. And <laughs> yes. he's just like, "Well, my friends are doing this thing. I,
0: you know, I'm I'm in." Reggie is my favorite character by far, and here's the reason why. Reggie is the uh he's clearly the guy who's not as cool, not as much of a ladies' man as Jody. And Jody looks like he's like handsome, he's well-built, he can play guitar. And obviously he can go to the bar any night of the week and pick up any girl he wants to. And Reggie looks like he has a lot harder time. Reggie's has like he's got like, bald on the top of his head, but he's got like a nice ponytail in the back. Reggie's job is driving the town's sole ice cream truck. He's the
1: ice cream man versus, but it's a cool ice versus cream the truck. other
0: car. Yeah, right. Right. With the, the Cuda, the right.
2: 71 Cuda versus the ice cream truck. Right? And it
1: looks kind of like it's a converted, roofless, ancient fire truck that he's painted white. And except for the funeral at the beginning of the movie, Reggie is always in his ice cream uniform, <laughs> which is like white shirt, white pants. Black bow tie and a vest. And it's as uncool as you can sort of get, but I always kind of get the impression that maybe Reggie's the guy who's really the biggest into this band that they had, and that maybe he has some kind of dream project where he wants to do some prog rock thing about Dune. <laughs> and it, it just like, it, he has that whole vibe about him. Like, he's totally game. He's and hot he, as love. He's, it, he's hot as And maybe he's just this incredible guitar player, and that's why him him and Jody are friends, because it otherwise it doesn't make sense. It, it's, it's so fucking... But but again, I've known a pair of friends exactly like these two guys where, you know, you've got this completely dorky guy who probably has come up with d stats for his character and he, he'd get them tattooed on him in a later generation, <laughs> but he has that kind of vibe about him and he's just kind of game because he comes over to their house just as they've managed to capture this little goblin monster that's like half goblin, half beetle, and they're killing it in the sink and and- You know, Reggie comes in, it kind of attacks Reggie, they grab it, you know, Jody throws it in the sink and starts stabbing it with a kitchen knife, and... You know, Reggie just goes with it. He's just like, wow, man, we got to do something about this shit. Let's go down to that funeral home, kick the shit out of that man and get some fucking answers. He's just like into it. And I just kind of like that. He's game. You know, you mentioned, you know, guys like this, or, you
2: know, you've met people like this. And I think the there's a familiarity. It's definitely cemented in a certain time, but there's a familiarity, especially with the brothers, I think. And that's um, central to it. But also, you know, this is at a time uh, when, you know, both parents would be working, right? And so kids, latchkey kids and things like that, they they had a lot more autonomy. And, you know, the world wasn't didn't seem to be as worried. You know, this is pre-Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin. So people weren't worried about their kids being kidnapped as much. And so you have you have a feeling that and you see this in other movies later, that parents are, if they're around, they're kind of inconsequential, and the kids are kind of living their own lives. You see that in Goonies, obviously Stranger Things, things like that. Right. Um, and in Phantasm, they just, there hadn't been a, a, a blueprint for that prior. So they kind of write that off with the parents have died, right? Mm-hmm. So these two, they have this life together. and. You know, you have a 13 year old who is driving this car. He's yeah. fixing yeah. the car. The older brother, kind of, you see how, in a way, he looks up to his younger brother. They have this wonderful relationship. They have this great friend that's kind of an oddball, but is, you know, he's tight as hell with him. Uh, and, and I think that really, it really gives that. You know, I talked about that authentic feel. It really gives that reality to the movie that otherwise
0: has none. Well, there there also is sort of an adolescent power fantasy involved here of a certain type of American male, because if you look at Mike's sort of living situation, Mike doesn't he has a surrogate parent in his older brother who is like 24, right? He's like in his mid-20s. But, I mean, hell, he can just like work on cars all day. He can drink if he wants to. The house is full of guns. He has he can a go hunting anywhere knife he... in his, his room. <laughs> he can, they, I mean, he can yeah. basically... This is like he's got no... He's got nothing Nothing pulling him back. I mean, I think the, the one thing that's sort of that's pushing him down a little bit is like the grief that he's still him and his older brother still have. But this is Don Coscarelli has sort of constructed this of being just sort of like the most fun playground you could have as an adolescent male.
2: That's true. Even the car was a fantasy car for Coscarelli. a—I read that there was a guy in high school that had that car oh, and yeah. he was totally envious of it. So he's like, we got to have the 71 <laughs> Cuda in, in the film. So yeah, it's like, what would be that fantasy? And they're living out that fantasy, but there is this overwhelming grief and dread that, that I think Morningside and everything that's going on there represents
1: and also with mike you have a, a child protagonist that is never frustrating or annoying he's not useless he's incredibly capable and resourceful he can fix things he gets trapped by his brother in his bedroom for his own safety at one point yeah it hammers yeah. A, a screwdriver in the door so he can't get out and he escapes with this crazy macgyvered up like it's like a ball peen hammer a shotgun shell and a thumbtack and some scotch tape. And he gets himself out (laughs) through that door. And it's like, that's something a lot of movies wouldn't let a kid do. So he's like driving cars, he's shooting guns. He's saving himself most of the time, Um, rescuing himself, escaping from kidnappings. And there really is a sense that, you know, he's really a big part of this adventure. He's not, he's not a sidekick. Uh, In a lot of ways, he's kind of a co lead with Jody. I think Michael is the protagonist of the film.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, given the ending, I think that has to be the only read you can take. And do, can we talk about? Can we talk yeah, about let's the, just do the ending? Because this is the this is the thing that uh, that. Uh, so I, the first time I watched it, I have to say I had some adult beverages, and by the time. I reached the I was really enjoying it and by the time I reached the end of it I was like, "Wait a minute, I don't know if I was paying attention correctly." So what happens is is they finally beat the bad guy. They lure him and he falls down a mine shafts and they win, you know, him and, they jo- drop him a and rock Jody on win. him then
1: too. So it's kind of the same way they killed Sharptooth in Land Before Time. <laughs> <laughs> but in the in the ensuing in the ensuing
0: fight, Reggie dies. So mm. it's like, "Oh, it's it's a it's a Pyrrhic victory. They win, but their one of their best friend dies." And then uh, there's a transition, and then you see uh, Mike in front of the fire with Reggie. Reggie's alive again, and Mike has been recounting this weird dream that he's had, where the Undertaker did, and, and Jody was still alive. And in this, in in the sort of th- this reality, it's like, oh, Jody had died in a car wreck, and this is sort of part of Mike, his subconscious playing out. Also, this grief and of this of how how does he, how did this happen? How did my life fall apart? Um, and then, of course, there's the the final shot where he goes into his room, closes the door, and in the mirror is the tall man waiting to come get him, reaches through the mirror and grab him. I the fact that it was all a dream kind of ending, I think, kind of sucks because you 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 care about these characters, you care about Mike and Reggie and uh and jody and you you also really feel it when reggie dies where you're just like
1: oh man i thought he was gonna get out and doing that it was all a dream uh, is was kind of bullshit so i'm trying to figure out if it's all just a dream or is it all just a dream except the last bit so in that bit there's parts of it that's not a dream and this is like this psychic crazy alien supernatural being fucking with him in his dreams freddy Krueger style or is the whole thing a dream is he just waking up for multiple dreams inside of other dreams like yeah. a Russian yeah. tea doll? I've thought a lot about this because it is
2: very jarring, right? When they're, they're in front of the fireplace, Reggie and, and Mike, you're like, what the hell just is, happened, yeah. right? Okay, and, and that's that's the way I felt when I was 14, and that's the way I feel now when I'm ancient. And um, <laughs> that said, I think it goes back to the room, the, my God, it's full of pods room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you know the the weird stuff with the tuning forks and one thing i think you have to kind of consider is there's a weird split that happens there at that room there's like a dimensionality or something mm-hmm. right not just with the with what's happening with those forks but at some point everything goes black and they're lost right they're they're all in different places right. suddenly what happened and i think time or the story or something it splits off in different avenues is kind of my take on that and so i think there is a take where it was a dream maybe and all, all that is is the way mike michael says it but i think also there is the situation where the tall
0: man he jumps between so the tall mm-hmm. man when he shows up there was all a dream and then the tall man's there i think the tall man's there well you mean you know that the you know from the movie that the tall man not only inhabits the dreams of Mike but also his older brother because there's you have two different scenes where he's sort of menacing them from a dream from a dream state.
1: And that's the kind of weird part is that there are parts of the movie where you're following Jody and not Mike. Right. And so it's the not, Revelation, it's not a Tyler
0: Durden thing, right? There're no. definitely places where it's like uh, Jody is here and he's doing things and c- people are talking directly to yeah. Jody. Yeah.
1: yeah. And at the same time you you have s- a lot of stuff that makes sense more after the revelation that's the dream like jody says hey i'm gonna get the mineshaft ready um he does not expect you know mike to run there and lead the tall man right. to the trap right he- but now he is ready and there's another bit at the very beginning when he's fixing the car underneath and then one of jody's friends drives by and goes hey what's going on it seems kind of crazy you're in this small town again and jody knowing that mike would be under the car openly talks about yeah this is that i'm probably going to leave him with a relative <laughs> and it feels like this is two real life memories that have gotten smashed together because jody is not characterized as someone who would do that right in front of mike
2: i think you know it goes back to it's a film about grief yeah and the you know jebediah morningside the tall man is he is there's a reason why he's the undertaker right I mean, and he represents death. He represents that, that dread that carries with you and won't leave you. And so this is unresolved grief that's coming out in really strange, bizarre ways. And that's, I think, a you know, over, over all these years, that's what I keep coming back to is how heavy the, the mortuary and all of those aspects weighs. Even the the tall man's blood, while that doesn't really look like embalming fluid, that's always the take. Is hmm. Everyone always feels like that's embalming fluid, right? Okay. It, it looks like mustard. <laughs> it is looks it, like is some...
1: embalming fluid that color? I don't know.
2: No, embalming fluid. Uh, well, if you did that, then people would look like that. that that's the color that they would end <laughs> well, it'd up. Well, you'd be like mm. water balloons, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you use uh, embalming fluid. Um, embalming fluid tends to be kind of... Pinkish or peachish, depending on the dye that you put in it,
1: because you're wanting to restore that color to the body. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. So one thing I kind of love that this movie does, and it's it was probably the most refreshing thing possible, because when you have a child protagonist, a lot of times, especially in a horror movie, there's this huge portion of the movie where nobody believes the child. Yep. And it kind of feels like the movie's gaslighting you. The kid is going on adventures and seeing crazy shit and tries to kind of get an adult to believe them. And they go, oh, you're crazy. Oh, just you go home. You're playing too many video games or some bullshit like that. And it does it very briefly in this movie. But one of the things that Mike does the second time, I like that he just kicks a window in at the funeral home when he breaks in. (laughs) But it leads to a chase where he cuts off uh, the fingers of the tall man. And he does something that I don't think a lot of people, again, Mike is super resourceful, grabs some of the fingers, throws it in a pocket and runs away. And when he gets home, he locks it in a little box because it's still wiggling, you know, like, you know. Oscar the Gratch's little friend, Slimy the Worm. And so he blocks it in this little box. And I love that he just falls asleep on the stairs with a shotgun in his lap. And that's how Jody finds him. A lot of movies would have him say like, Jody, Jody, I got this thing. I got this thing. You got to look at it. He'd open the box and there's just that orange goo in there and it's gone. There's proof is gone. You know, it's like the tooth and jaws like it's gone. And then he's like, Oh, you're crazy. You're making stuff up. And we'd go through that a bunch, but instead the finger's still there. It's still lingering. And immediately Jody believes him. And I was like, Oh, thank fucking Christ. Because that never happens in movies. And it was just nice to have the sort of validation of an adult who goes, Literally says, "I believe you." (laughs) It's things like that. It's moments like that that really
2: solidify that solidarity that these brothers have, and and you mentioned that with Reggie too. You know, Reggie's like, "Guys, what the hell's going on?" And then immediately accepts it, and he's all in, right? right? Right. So there's, yeah, there's no, there's no real second guessing that happens. Just it's just tremendous. They're tight,
0: yeah, right. I mean the 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 thing that can be the most frustrating for me and I'm sure a lot of people who aren't big horror hounds is when you have those tropes like Mike was just saying where they've got to be like well you've got a kid and then no one believes him and then so you know you're going to have to sit through like 15 minutes of people getting obliterated cuz they don't believe the kid and it can be frustrating cuz you as the audience can be like can we get past this part cuz I want to be on the other side of it where you know they're going to they're they're going to hunt, hunt some people down I uh I think what it, what is good about this movie is that, ex- with one exception, which is the gr- when uh, the girls sort of take Mike to try to keep him safe, and then they go back out again, they kind of do like a really stupid, trivial horror movie cliche thing which is like let's go and then like not starting the car and going when somebody but instead, tells you to floor it yeah. just floor it and um, just
1: ask questions as you're driving it's, it's
0: that sort of thing that i've just it's really really hard when when a movie overuses it where a character is just it, it's the character doesn't know they're in a horror movie obviously but just does something so stupid that you're just like come on um and this movie kind of gives itself an out right that the girl's are like uh, just in some dialogue Reggie's like oh I found the girls somewhere and we let her let out and they fled into like a bunch of the in girls the I don't know yeah, yeah. Uh, he's like he's like okay well the girls are fine <laughs> I
1: kind of like that we don't see them again as monsters because that's the thing you sort of expect right right and the same thing when Reggie shows up again after you think he might have been killed because his, his ice cream truck was turned over and it seems like you know monsters must have come and taken him. That he shows up again, you're like, oh, he's possessed. And it's so nice that it's really just Reggie who's managed to escape. It's yeah. a fairly tropeless movie, but I do kind of
2: want to talk about the role of women in in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, because they they are in the flick. Um, but it's kind of interesting. There's it's kind of like the girls are gross or you know no girls allowed, boys only kind of thing. Um, that's that's going on because like you said that. The the girls are the ones who do. They kind of they do that stupid thing in, in the car in the VW. And they don't they don't go. They allow and some of that could just be clumsy editing or you know. But still, right, that's right. the way it comes off. Um, and then it's interesting too, though, that we hear that like we see the psychic the 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 psychic's granddaughter goes into the mortuary to investigate. She goes into the room and we hear her scream. And we assume that she came to a bad end Mm -hmm. and maybe she did, but she also could be maybe in that room with, you know, Reggie said there's other women in there too. Um, So we don't really know, but why, why aren't they turning them into, why are they all in a room? We don't know. And it it doesn't matter to the movie, but it's, um, it it is an interesting kind of sequestering of females in in the movie.
1: Well, I
0: mean the, your other real interactions with women are like, um, Mike spying on his older brother getting with this lady and she takes her top off and he's like, nice. So, and again, it sort of feeds the idea that this is sort of an ad- just like an adolescent yeah. fantasy as a thing because the girls are either just sort of like like the, the two girlfriends that sort of protect them. They're kind of just like nebulous uh, older sisters or they're just like impossibly beautiful vixens. You know, right. like it's it, it can't be, it can't, it's nothing, it's either one of the two. You yeah. Know? None of them are, are actual characters no yeah no,
1: that's yeah. true yeah one thing i kind of love is there's just moments in this movie that are absolute bonkers the the big one of course being the caretaker getting killed by the death ball um, does that thing have a name the sphere thing it's the ball just the ball, it's the ball. It's the ball. I, I, a lot of things do not have official names in this movie i remember
2: for the tagline i want to say phantasm Two. the tagline for the preview i always remember trailers from when i was little and stuff i yeah, just really crisp and the tagline was the ball is back
1: <laughs> <laughs> i i gotta say i wanted a lot more of that ball in this movie yeah i i wanted but
0: but the fact that they did it actually they use it so sparingly i mean there's the isn't that the thing about a horror movie is that horror special effects are usually best when you see them very little mm-hmm. um and in this you know you kind of see it flying around and him uh, mike ducking under it right and then you see it hitting the guy so you you get the whole payoff of right what the ball the does right and then you get uh, Jody, uh, sort of let you know how powerful that they actually are, because um, you know normally in a movie if it was like a Hellraiser movie, humans are just totally powerless to like resist whatever energy or form or force that the bad guys have. But I mean, Jody's able to blow that shit away with a fucking
1: shotgun. And yeah, It's like yes, we Explore. can do something. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah. I I do love that when mike bites the caretaker's arm it's like a zombie bite (laughs) he really gets that guy most of the time you just go ow but yeah that's what your jaw
2: would do to somebody's arm the ball was having the ball made was one of the most expensive aspects of the film Mm -hmm. and they it was really only intended for the one scene with the groundskeeper um but it was it was so fantastic that they ended up putting the scene in later that you just alluded to that where Jody blasted with a shotgun. And it's wonderful that it's only in there that much. I mean, when you watch later sequels, those balls, I mean, there's, you know, you get to the last one, let's say Phantasm Ravager and <laughs> there's got to be a billion of these things. There's like a planet sized one. I mean, it just becomes oh this, this whole thing, right? You <laughs> need to and nail it, Galactus in the head. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you have you have balls that live inside of people's heads and there's all kinds of crazy thing. And, and that's its own sort of bonkers thing. But it's really great that it's this mysterious, excellent effect. You know, it's a they had a baseball pitcher throw it and they just filmed it that way. And it's it looks, think about any special effect you see in Beastmaster. Right. <laughs> and then you think about, The way that ball looks going down that fake marble hallway and
0: how great all that looks. Well, the thing that I – because Mike made made a – found a gif of it. The thing that there's a close-up shot where you're sort of seeing it and you're seeing it fly down the hallways. And it's it's very clear. But you can – since it's a shiny metal ball, you can see the reflection. And in the reflection, there's no camera. So however they filmed it, they they did it perfectly. It looks like it actually would be and there's no like – boom or lights right.
1: or guy behind a camera on it it just looks perfectly in the world it never looks like a it never jumps out of it the way that suddenly you're watching a horror movie and there's just a stop motion shot that's really right. jarring right it never feels like that it it and there's a neat little like Jetson sound as it zips around <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. The, all the sounds in the movie are But just the way that caretaker dies, you're just like, holy fuck, whatever this thing does, it also shoots like a fountain of blood out of the front. (laughs) Well, it doesn't want to keep it. Yeah. Um, But there's a couple other things that I think are just wonderfully bonkers. There's a bit where Jody kind of goes to investigate the things Mike are telling him. So he goes through that broken window into the basement and he gets attacked by one of these little guys in the hoods, one of the minions, who just jumps on his back and is like choking him. And Jody pulls his gun out and this is like, there's just like, it's like a Darwin Award moment, just waiting to happen. He's like, <laughs> points he's it being, towards his, his own his head. own head to try to hit, the, <laughs> the, and he get, he pulls it off. And I was just, I first time I said, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> I just, just like this is a really bad idea. Well you
2: think about you, you kind of mentioned his transitions to the 80s, and you think about all the action heroes of the 80s and the stupid shit they get away with doing, right? Jody is like the real deal. He's got the swagger, right? We know he is. He's that. He's the man, right? And so, if anybody can do that stupid shit and get away with it, it's going to be Jody.
0: And if this <laughs> is
1: a dream, this is Jody through the perspective yeah. of his brother who warns right. him. So, so who would
0: see him that way? I, yeah, I, just because we, because I think I did. I until this moment I hadn't really thought about it. Of the things that are obviously make jody cool i mean he's he's an archetypal cool older brother um not only him being sort of like old enough to buy beer and like you know he can he can drive you anywhere you want to go and he'll have your back um and he'll let you it's, drive the car too it's right it's the first time in a movie and it probably wasn't the first time ever in an american movie but i like that uh jody basically tells his brother the safety rules regarding guns yes <laughs> so it's not like a normal movie where it's like like they' you, know, you throw someone a loaded gun, and they're like, "There's the safety. Just point and shoot." He's sort of like, you know what the gun is, right? You know, like don't point a gun at someone that you're not intend to shoot, and don't pull the trigger of something you don't want to kill. Like, and he's like, "Warning shots are bullshit." I just lo- I love the idea that he basically gives him like the. Um, like the gun safety, the 70s equivalent of the gun safety lecture for
1: us on camera while he's like checking the barrel, checking the, the action of the guns. But there's an inclusion in that, too, where he's like, I'm not going to lock you in. He does lock him in somewhere. But when it's time to, to do the real shit and he knows he needs help, he's like, you're going to help me and you're going to have a gun. We're both in on this. We have <laughs> to fight right. this dude. And he's just like. he he treats him kind of like an equal in that moment. He's his guardian and his older brother, but he's still like, I know you're capable. And as a little kid character, you know, you just go, wow, this is the coolest thing ever because I'm watching this now as a 42-year-old guy, but if I'd seen this movie when I was 14, I would have just been, holy shit, Mike is the coolest guy ever (laughs) because he gets to do all this stuff that we would never be allowed to as a kid character in any other movie. You know, one of my favorite scenes is... Mike's uh
2: you know he's on on the ground working on the car right after they've been driving out he diagnoses what needs fixed <laughs> and he's fixing it and Jody goes out riding on the banana seat bike right right <laughs> like, this is the, the this is a very uh, emasculating seeming moment for Jody but he's happy you know he's just riding down the street on this thing who knows where he's going he's
0: kind of in that moment you know he's actually kind of thinking about his teenage years because he's met this right after right before, right after the the guy pulls over and says yes. jody you're back so I can tell that it's a little bit like I want to know what it feels like to ride down my street again.
2: Yeah, and he yeah. has no other choice. He wants to leave. He has no other choice because Mike's got the car. So Michael's working on the on the CUDA and Jody's riding the kid's bike. And so you <laughs> see these roles reverse. Same thing. It isn't it isn't Jody who goes at night to the to Morningside to check it out. It's Michael who has learned fear is the killer. And of course, he's he's got to be scared shitless. But he jumps the gate at night. He goes in. He breaks the window, and goes in the place. He goes into the showroom with the caskets. By the way, I have one of those caskets. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, I, the casket he gets in is a Batesville. It's it, They still make the same style. That's oh, okay. how little that industry's changed. That's a Batesville rental casket, the oak casket he's in. I have one at my house. <laughs> same one, and it even has the same cap panel inside with the maple leaves. But anyway, he hides in there. You know, he does all those things. He's the he's the one that moves forward on these things. Yeah. Well, Jody is is he's hesitant. He doesn't want to believe these things. He doesn't want to see the weirdness that's going on.
1: I I do kind of like it. Those little little touches this movie has that lets Mike be capable. Like when he's hiding in the casket from the caretaker. Um, he takes his lighter and puts it on the edge of the right. casket so right. it won't fully close and lock him in. Right. That's
2: one of those great things that make the movie feel authentic cuz most right. movies I think Spielberg used to do things like that in his, you know, Close Encounters and E.T. Those those are the types of touches that would make those such excellent films. Then you watch a movie like
0: Minority Report or anything since then and he doesn't bother with stuff doesn't like mind. that. I, it's kind of like Mike you always use this as the ultimate ex- the, the ur example of like in Empire Strikes Back, when Luke dusts the snow off of his wristwatch, and yeah, you're just like it yeah. didn't. You didn't need to do that, but it makes it so so much more grounded. When it you're wouldn't be like, something
1: sense. you did if you weren't in something with real snow on you. Right. Yeah. and those little touches, like going, "Hey, if I don't do this right, I could get locked here." And a lot of movies would just have him get trapped in right. there, and that's how <laughs> he gets captured. Right. But the fact that he's a he's a character who thinks to do something like that so he won't get locked in shows that he's resourceful. And mm. that's something you don't get a lot. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, your, your kid characters usually exist to increase the sense of stakes and danger so that adult characters can rescue them constantly. And they either cry or say something sort of precocious. But, you know, Mike is steering this movie. Yeah. I think a good, good comparable uh, incident would be in Goonies again, mm-hmm.
2: where. Mikey is probably the closest to a main character that we have and his older brother Bran, you know he's the older brother but really he follows Mikey's lead, right right, right. Yeah So you end up with the same the same analog.
0: So is this a, is this like a Kid Power movie, like less than, you know, nine years before Kid Power became a real thing?
1: Yeah. But, yeah, but also more transgressive than a lot of Kid Power's movie because there's boobs in it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and usually you don't get this. So I imagine if I had watched this when I was, you know, 13 years old, it would have been like, oh, I'm getting away with something right. while watching right. this. At the same time, it's sort of like you kind of feel like the movie is for me. You know, wink, wink. We know it's got boobs in it, but we know you're going to watch it way too young. And it kind of makes it exciting when you know you're kind of above your grade level in, what, in what's appropriate for you. And it's like, it kind of is for me. So I mentioned I first saw this when I was 14, and this
2: has got to be late 80s, right? And that particular summer, uh, my best friend at the time, James Smith, I hope he's still alive, um, we spent the almost the entire summer drunk. Watching, (laughs) watching horror movies. And that's when I really, really became a fan. I always liked movies, but that's when I really became a fan of movies and especially horror film. And there were three movies that we repeatedly watched probably at least once a week. He had them on tape, you know, uh, somehow. And one of them was Evil Dead 2. Another one was Angel Heart. Oh, wow. And Phantasm and phantasm of the three and i know this is going to be sacrilege to a lot of folks cuz i love evil dead 2 also but phantasm was my go to and still is like hmm. i think it's so much you know so much smarter in in so many ways and being a 14 year old who's doing things he shouldn't be doing and feeling that sense of freedom and and obliviousness about the rest of the world drinking all summer and watching horror movies
1: boy did that movie speak to me right <laughs> and having a favorite like that is usually great because it's a movie most people haven't heard of so it kind of feels like it's yours yeah, yeah.
0: and and this is the thing that maybe mike you and i can address this because i had never seen this movie until you uh, you uh, in fact I, I haven't either in yeah. fact i watched the movie and i was like because of the connection that i told about life force i was like wait a minute did i watch the right movie i wasn't <laughs> sure i wasn't sure when it got to the scene where You like you saw like the
1: uh, he goes through the portal and he sees the other planet. I'm like, yeah, this is the right movie. I thought a lot of the imagery from this movie that I kind of recognized was probably from Hellraiser. Yeah. Which I also haven't seen.
0: Um, But but to a non horror horror movie person, could a non horror movie person enjoy this is my question, because now that I've got I'm an adult and I watch horror movies now, I've got a greater appreciation for all of the things you've been saying that this movie does that other horror movies don't. Would a non-horror movie person get tired of like the silly tropes about people scurrying around in the dark and things going? That's my question. Is how palatable if you're not? I think who's it's in on
1: weird it. enough that it can keep people watching, and I think the strangeness of it is is part of the low budget. Is that the more expensive and blockbustery? Something gets and this never got to the level of your Friday the 13th where you know the producers take over at some point and start going, No, these are the formula things we need to do. This thing is just allowed to be strange and specific and kind of the vision of the you know, just strange image again, Jody shooting, shooting that little person off his shoulders, or you know, the drill ball, or just. Anything with this awesome skull-faced, crazy tall man, Angus Scrim, walking in slow motion, or, or like he's on the runway. Even in, in in sort of a
0: less fantastic thing, just the moment that the movie allows to have, like where Jody and Reggie are like playing a song out on the front porch. Yeah, where it's like that. This was this was clearly because of that. These these two guys probably became were friends or became friends, and were like, hey, do you want? I wrote this song. Can we do this in the movie? And they just like put it there. It makes it feel so much more lived in and so much more fleshed out. And, and you're I, right. That yeah. was the song
2: was written by by the Jody actor. Nice. Yeah, that's his Fender twin. That's his <laughs> Stratocaster with the 70s headstock on it. And it's it's those things that really make it a real film. Right. I feel like it's a movie that is is so it's not the weirdest movie out there, but it's it's weird enough that I feel like it's there's a lot of horror fans who haven't seen it, even though it's like like Joe Bob Briggs rated it in his top 25 Oh wow! bravos excellent 100 scariest movies of all time they put out however many years ago it was like number 25 entertainment weekly listed as one of the top so you know it's it's got a lot of accolades and true horror fans really know the movie but there's a lot of horror fa- you know fairly casual horror fans who've never seen it and when you try to tell them to watch it they just there's something that doesn't sound appealing to them about mm-hmm. it but it's it, it, it's i think it i i personally really love that it belonged to me when I was 14 sure. and it still does. Like yeah, yeah. people don't really know the movie unless
1: they know the movie. Right. So I guess that gets us to our, our last big question. For sure. Um, and I think we may have just answered this, but is Phantasm worth your time? Uh, I can say as
0: being, yes, the, uh, the kind of guy that really probably not until maybe less than 10 years ago did I ever start kind of really engaging with horror movies. Um, and you know, just in the last couple of years, I've seen things like *My Bloody Valentine* that are like the classic kind of horror movies of the same era. I have to say, this is better than a lot of those. You know, it's it's probably not going to be more iconic than a *Halloween* or something, right? So, um, but the, the top twenty-five is exactly the way to is exactly the way to put it. Is it's got things that are strange. It it spawned a franchise, so that obviously puts it up above right when a horror movie gets more than one it means something was successful about the first one and people wanted to keep going back to it um it's it's i it, I, it might it could even be possibly could even be some a good someone's first horror movie yeah that's kind of what i what i thought about it is like maybe when my when uh, when my oldest is like 13 i'd be like i'd show him this movie it's time
1: to see something with boobs yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, my kids definitely know phantasm <laughs> for sure yeah Yeah, I I would say exactly the same, um, too. I think this movie is absolutely worth your time. It's strange, and it has the low-budget charm of being just a bunch of friends making a movie, but there's a craft to it. And I think that there's a definite uh, production design. The ideas are so specific and weird and things that I haven't seen. But I've also seen so much that this movie has influence now, it being one that we mentioned before, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, I think
0: Terminator might have been influenced. I just, for some reason, that thing about that chase with the car that isn't being that's not being driven by no one, yeah. Um, that just reminded me so much of Terminator. I know yeah. there's a million car chases. Because he's but, going out the back, he's popping yeah. out the, the roof with the shotgun. I just shotgun. got that same vibe of like maybe... In the Corman days, this is something that James Cameron was exposed to.
1: So it's like a combination of like the cinematography, the production design, the soundtrack. I really love the theme to this movie. Yeah, it's it's kind of reminds me a lot of again, like we mentioned, of a Carpenter score where there's this minimalism to it, but it's a minimalism that is incredibly versatile, and you can mix it with different other music sort of underneath it to strengthen it or change the mood. Uh, you can change the tempo. The It's, it's really great. And it is so strange yet. It feels like it's the prototype of a lot of things that would come after it, including a really iconic, you know, horror movie villain that you just, you recognize him right away and go, Oh my God, this is a character that's going to be in sequels. And the same thing with like, the the Chrome Death Ball and all of that the the awesome mausoleum set yeah I absolutely I think this movie is great and I I both am excited to and dread the sequels <laughs> that's fair that's fair um, okay as far
2: as being a movie that I think is worth your time no it's not worth your time leave it to me um, <laughs> <laughs> no seriously though I think I think in a lot of ways it it's I think it's really pertinent now because it being a movie about grief, um, about grieving, because not only have so many of us lost people one way or the other during this pandemic, but there's so many other things that we're grieving and something interesting. You you just mentioned the sequels, which I'm not going to recommend people watch the sequels necessarily, but (laughs) in fact, the last one they made ravager before Angus scrim died uh, is I think just just really bad, hmm. but it's a movie about Alzheimer's and oh, there's wow. a sort of, and Angus scrim by the way, died of Alzheimer's oh, and he wow. was suffering through it while they were filming. Um, but Alzheimer's carries with it its own heavy grief. Right. Right. And its own long living death, et cetera. And so I, I think that that alone lends itself to a relevance now that, while it's a very time encapsul- encapsulated film, you know, for that particular time that we're talking about, that late 70s kind of thing, it, I think it really can apply itself to what what a lot of
1: us are feeling today. Especially kids going through grief. Yeah. Then, you know, this is experience that people, you don't expect a kid to go through, but it's like, you know, we're closing in on a million deaths in the United States from COVID. So a lot of people have gone through grief, just suddenly striking somebody that they know And I can, feeling isolated by that, especially because we're sort of cut off from each other in ways that we haven't been. So that grief kind of festers because we don't feel like we have a way of expressing it. And I think a movie like this could could definitely touch on that sort of raw nerve feeling right now and kind of be cathartic. I agree.
2: And I think also, you know, while this isn't as relevant now as it was maybe a few years back, but, you know, if you're really into that kind of Stranger Things kind of thing, sure, Stranger sure. Things borrows extremely heavily hmm. from this film. You know, think about the, the other dimension opening and the monsters coming through and the, the... I realize that's a kid's on bikes, but it's the same type of thing, right? right.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird because I, I see kind of all of these things... In all of these different subgenres that you wouldn't normally associate with each other, all having at least partial, you know, inspiration from Phantasm. You know, not just the kids on bikes subgenre of sort of nineteen eighties movies, but sort of the iconic slasher character, especially if they're sort of dreamlike, you know, whether you could say it's, you know, uh, Pinhead or uh, Freddy Krueger, somebody who isn't necessarily just a physical threat, but sort of this existential threat that you don't even know if you can physically fight i i see a lot of that kind of having its roots you know pennywise the clown mm-hmm. too like there's no doubt that stephen king saw this movie oh, sure. and it influenced a lot of kids uh, seeing photographs moving with this supernatural character mm-hmm. and i'm supposed to battle this thing
0: i i felt uh, about the uh ba- the babadook as well mm-hmm. Simi-
1: similar movie uh about grief, where grief is personified in this yeah. supernatural force. Yeah. So, I I think this is a great conversation. Todd, Maxfield Matsumoto, thank you for bringing this movie to us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about
2: Phantasm, and there's so few people that you really can talk about Phantasm <laughs> with.
1: I hope that we get somebody to check it out. I believe it's on... Tubi or uh, Pluto? I think, I it's, think on, it's on Tubi. It's on Tubi right yeah. now, so go to Tubi TV I think it's tubitv.com. Think you can get it for free. Free streaming service. Yeah. So yeah, check it out, you know, get some get some weird movies in your diet. <laughs> and I think Tubi TV is kind of a I don't know if you've checked it out, uh, but one of the great things about it is it's probably the streaming service that feels the most like going to an old video yeah. rental place yeah. with yeah. all of these box art that you've never heard of before and you're going, "I don't know what that is, but I think it's about a monkey killing people." <laughs> <laughs> i don't know maybe i'll click and uh so yeah i thank you todd Maxil matsumoto for joining us we loved having you back we've really dearly missed you it's my pleasure to be back thanks for inviting me and if is there any projects that you're working on right now that you want to pitch to people
2: Oh, I don't know about pitching to things, but years ago, I did do a cover, uh, an entirely guitar-based cover of the Phantasm theme, um, and I, I, you can find it on YouTube, but I'm not going to tell you how, but uh, <laughs> it, I'm really proud of it, though, because um, one of the things I love doing is using the guitar to make non-guitar sounds and trying to not capture, but trying to sort of conjure all the weirdness of the sounds you hear in that movie via, you know, one of my favorite things in the world, which is guitar is just, I was really at a good time with it. Nice.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Todd. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. Very special. Thank you to Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Zuri Russell, Steel Wolf, Sterling Taylor, Tom, the Belgian, Wim, the Belgian, Misa, the barbarian, James Brucker, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kaylin, Matt Weber, and Hans Twite. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, folks. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, please go to patreoncom radio versus the Martians or go to our website at radio versus the There's a big green button on the right side on a desktop, but if you're on your phone, scroll all the way to the bottom. Click there. We'd love to, to have your guys' support. And otherwise, we'll catch you guys next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted
0: by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield-Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
2: come over and see what was going on before the kids got out of summer school. Hey Mike, you want to ride along with me today? It's pretty warm outside and the ice cream's gonna be flying fast and furious.
0: Remember how good you were at crowd control last time. Hey what's going on here? Ah!